0: Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, many people will know that the Supreme Court ruled on Roe v. Wade in 1973, enshrining women's right to access abortion, to choose when and whether to have a child. It seemed to signal recognition that abortion is health care, that most women who have abortions are mothers, in other words, they don't need to see an ultrasound to recognize what's happening to them, that medical reality and theology are not the same, and that outlawing abortion doesn't stop abortion, but just pushes women to have them in unsafe, potentially lethal ways. Less often considered is how immediately after Roe, Congress passed the Hyde Amendment, taking the fundamental human right out of the hands of women who rely on government assistance. So low-income, overwhelmingly women of color. Hyde acknowledged that they wanted to outlaw abortion for all women, but poor women were the only ones they had legal standing to control. That cynical approach proved effective as Americans watched the ability to access abortion chipped away with wait times, parental notification rules, hospital credential requirements, clinic closings, funding cutoffs for international groups, all the while comforted by the notion that the right to abortion was somehow still legally protected. Well, that narrative is exploding right now in the wake of the Supreme Court refusal to address amounting to endorsement of what is overwhelmingly understood as an unconstitutional Texas law offering a bounty on anyone who aids and abets a woman seeking an abortion after six weeks of pregnancy. We'll talk about the law with Marjorie Cohn, Professor Emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law, former president of the National Lawyers Guild and author of, among other books, Drones and Targeted Killing, Legal, Moral and Geopolitical Issues. And we'll also revisit a conversation from January of this year about the law on abortion and what it can and can't do with Kimberly Inez McGuire. Executive Director of the group URGE, Unite for Reproductive and Gender Equity. That's coming up this week on Counterspin. We'll get right to it. Counterspin's brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Listeners know about Texas's new law that provides up to $10,000 to anyone who successfully sues someone they think helped a woman obtain an abortion after six weeks of pregnancy. That's two weeks past a missed period before many women even know they're pregnant, and it accounts for at least 85% of abortions in Texas. Senate Bill 8 is the subject of punchlines and memes, casting it as dystopian, draconian, backward, and bizarre. It's also, you know, still happening. Clearly, those invested in women's human rights need something more than outrage to fuel the necessary pushback to this development, which, while it is new kinds of creepy and cruel, is entirely of a piece with conservatives' decades-long effort to turn back, not the clock, but the calendar on reproductive rights. So what now? Is the law enough? Has it ever been? We're joined now by Marjorie Cohn, Professor Emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law, former president of the National Lawyers Guild and author of... I think most recently, Drones and Targeted Killing, Legal, Moral, and Geopolitical Issues from Olive Branch Press. She joins us now by phone from San Diego. Welcome back to Counterspin, Marjorie Cohn.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Janine.
0: Well, I'd like to ask you first about Senate Bill 8, or the Texas Heartbeat Act itself. How does deputizing and incentivizing people to sue anyone they believe aided and abetted an abortion. How is that different than a ban on those abortions? What's the legal maneuvering going on here? It's clearly strategic.
1: It is strategic, Janine, because generally statutes provide for causes of action in court to be brought by the government but then people can sue the government and so in order to get around that What this Texas SB aid is doing is to deputize private people to act as vigilantes and sue abortion providers and those who aid and abet them. Now, that could include doctors, nurses, friends, spouses, parents, domestic violence counselors, clergy members... Uber drivers, Lyft drivers, they don't even have to know that they are helping a woman to get an abortion as long as an Uber driver knows that he is driving a car and dropping off a woman somewhere. So it's really broad. And what it does is to put a $10,000 bounty plus attorney's fees on any of these so-called aiders and abettors. And so what Texas is doing, in effect, is bribing its residents to sue people who help women get abortions.
0: Well, and I was several articles deep before I learned that the woman seeking an abortion can't be sued— so it really is about the support networks the very people who have been addressing the fact that you know women have had a right to abortion without access to abortion it's really it's really there's something especially devious and and scary about it
1: it's insidious because now women in Texas who can afford to travel, say, to California to get a safe abortion will be able to do that. But poor women, undocumented women, women in rural Texas, people of color in Texas, will have to resort to life-threatening, back-alley, coat-hanger abortions once again, as before Roe v. Wade. And there is another law that people are not talking about that is called SB 4, Senate Bill in Texas, which specifically targets medication abortions, because 60 percent of early-term abortion, people who want abortions, choose to take a pill rather than have surgery. And what SB4 does, this is actually a criminal statute, creates a felony for providers who prescribe medication abortions after seven weeks of pregnancy, basically double banning abortions in the state. And it also bans abortion-inducing pills from being mailed into Texas. The FDA has approved two drugs for non-surgical abortions, and their guidelines, their 2016 guidelines, uh, the FDA allows practitioners to provide mifepristone and misoprostol up to 10 weeks gestation. And so SB4 would actually punish someone with, with a criminal law State criminal law for prescribing any of these medications.
0: Well, besides the obvious spur and incentive to vigilantism, the lawmakers have somehow absented themselves from being responsible for the laws they make. There's a thing where somehow the folks who made these laws or might enforce them, somehow they've taken themselves out of the equation. What's going on there with lawmakers kind of Saying you can't come back to us, you know, when this is problematic.
1: Well, they've had some clever lawyers trying to craft this law in a way that is not going to be successfully challenged in the courts. Now, interestingly, as we're speaking, um, the Department of Justice, Merrick Garland, the attorney general, who should have been on the Supreme Court, actually, and uh, I think this we wouldn't even be talking about this case right now in all likelihood, but... The Justice Department sued the state of Texas to block this Senate Bill 8, and they are arguing that the law is invalid under the Supremacy Clause, the 14th Amendment, Um, it is preempted by federal law. It violates the doctrine of intergovernmental immunity, and the U.S. government has an obligation to ensure that no state can deprive individuals of their constitutional rights. Now, this lawsuit has just been filed as we speak, and so we'll see what the courts do with it. Also, on the 3rd of September, two days after the five person right wing majority of the Supreme Court allowed Texas's SB 8 to go into effect with no lower courts weighing in, without briefing, without oral argument. Two days later, a judge in Austin, Texas, issued a temporary restraining order in favor of Planned Parenthood and against the so-called Texas Right to Life organizations. Uh, organization. And it just affects Planned Parenthood and Texas Right to Life. On September 13th, there will be a hearing on a preliminary injunction and also this so-called Texas Right to Life. And I say so-called because right to life is really a misnomer. And uh, Many of these people, I'm afraid, are very concerned with the life of the fetus, Uh, not so much with the life of the mother, although there is an exception in SB8 if a woman's health or life is at stake, if the mother needs prenatal care, if the baby's born and needs medical care health insurance, education. That's socialism. Forget about the right to life. So back to uh, this other development, which is the Texas right to life. They had to close their website after their host, GoDaddy, said that it violated the terms of service. In other words, they were collecting information on someone without their consent. So there is pushback now. There are lawsuits, and I think we're going to see a proliferation of lawsuits, Janine, as well there should be. And keep in mind that the five-person right-wing majority on the Supreme Court, and this excludes Chief Justice John Roberts, who voted with the liberals, he was upset that They didn't even rule on the constitutionality of it. They just let the law go into effect, the five-person right-wing majority, with no briefing, with no oral argument, without seeing what the district court and the court of appeals would do with it. But they did let it go into effect, which is wreaking havoc. Women are freaking out, and so are abortion providers and families and and, uh, everyone else in Texas. But what this does is to give us a pretty strong indication that when the Supreme Court reconvenes for their new term in October, and they take up the case of Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, which is a Mississippi law banning abortion after 15 weeks, that this right-wing majority of the Supreme Court may well overturn Roe versus Wade. And if that happens, you're going to see these state laws, particularly in red states, proliferate. You're going to see women being charged with crimes for having an abortion. And this is very disturbing. But Donald Trump's installation of three radical right-wing justices, and I use justices advisedly, is paying off. He said he was going to appoint justices who would overturn Roe v. Wade. And it looks, unfortunately and tragically, like that's the direction they're headed.
0: Well, I just want to tease you out on some points that you've just made. I mean, my eighth grade government teacher told us, if you remember nothing else, remember the Constitution is the law of the land, you know. So we have Roe v. Wade. We have Planned Parenthood. Versus Casey. And, you know, we've talked a lot about, on this show, about how a law can provide a right, and that that's different from access, you know, and how, for example, the Hyde Amendment has always taken abortion out of reach for women who rely on federal funding. So we know there's a difference between having a law on the books somewhere, and women actually having access to abortion rights. But still... We've understood the Constitution is the law of the land. So I know that you have talked about it, but if you could just go a little bit more, what the hell happened at the Supreme Court?
1: Well, Roe versus Wade, which has been reinforced by several cases since provides a right to abortion until viability. That means when the fetus is viable outside the the mother, generally 22 to 24 weeks. And so the Supreme Court has said there is a constitutional right to abortion. And there are two federal criminal statutes on the books. One is Section 242, which makes it a crime for people who under color of law, that means somebody in the government, willfully depriving individuals of constitutional rights. Then there's Section 241, which makes it an even more serious crime for two or more persons to agree to oppress, threaten, or intimidate anyone in in uh, securing their constitutional rights. So beyond this lawsuit that the Justice Department just brought, there can be prosecutions, federal criminal prosecutions of Plaintiffs, and these are anybody basically, they don't even have to live in Texas under SB 8, anyone who wants to sue an abortion provider or someone who aids and abets them. So there are many legal challenges, there are prospective legal challenges. It's not over till it's over, but again, as I said, all bets are off, and I'm not so sure they are off. I think it may be, unfortunately, a pretty good bet that the radical right-wing majority of the Supreme Court may well overturn Roe v. Wade next term in that Mississippi case.
0: Well, let me just ask you, finally, I know that you are obviously concerned with the law, but I know that you also recognize the limits of law. What are the other things that we can do. We've, we've already recognized the way that Roe doesn't reach everyone and hasn't reached everyone. We want the material reality of abortion access. So what do we do besides stand around and wait for the Supreme Court to decide about Roe? Well, people
1: are already getting into the streets to protest this Texas law. A majority of people in this country support the right to choose, the right of a woman to control her own body. And when people vote in elections, local elections, and uh, also federal elections, state elections, um, in spite of the right-wing voter suppression laws proliferating all over this country, um, there are still tremendous turnout of people who are very aware of the consequences of their actions. And so, and gerrymandering is another hurdle that they have to overcome as well, but it may be that this abortion ruling redounds to the benefit of the Democrats in the midterm elections. I don't know. People can demonstrate, exercise their First Amendment rights, vote, make sure that their, uh, their friends and colleagues vote, as well as bringing lawsuits, which are happening now.
0: We've been speaking with Marjorie Cohn. She's Professor Emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law, a former president of the National Lawyers Guild, and author of Drones and Targeted Killing Legal, Moral, and Geopolitical Issues, among other titles. And you can keep up with her work at marjoriecohn.com. Marjorie Cohn, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin.
1: Thanks for inviting me, Janine. <music>
0: In January 2021, Counterspin spoke with Kimberly Inez McGuire, executive director of the group URGE, Unite for Reproductive and Gender Equity. We asked her first about how courts have reaffirmed Roe time and again, but that still didn't get at the layers and layers between what the court says women can legally do and what they can actually do.
2: The gulf between the theoretical legality of abortion in this country and the lived experience of people trying to get an abortion is wide and getting wider. And so much of the restrictions on abortion are rendered invisible because they only appear based on who you are, where you live and frankly how much money you have in the bank. So when we look at the layers upon layers, you know, we go back to the Hyde Amendment which is older than I am and it's a federal policy that prevents Medicaid from covering abortion and it was passed in short order after the Roe v mm-hmm. Wade decision. And so what happened was the Supreme Court said abortion's legal, folks rejoiced, right? This was a big deal and Almost immediately thereafter, the door was closed on any low-income woman who gets her insurance through Medicaid. And so for decades, if you are using Medicaid as your insurance, abortion access is not real to you. We then have seen since 2010, this newer tsunami of abortion restrictions, literally hundreds and hundreds of new abortion laws passed in almost every state in the country. There's a handful of states that have sort of held the line, but all over the country, we are seeing restrictions on who can get an abortion, where they can get an abortion, restrictions designed to shut down clinics, restrictions targeting young people, right? And this has created a labyrinth for anyone who's just trying to navigate getting basic health care. And so again, we, we have this sort of legal fiction of Roe that says abortion is legal, but if you can't afford it, if you are young and can't get your parents to sign off on your decision, if there's not a clinic in your neighborhood, if the clinic in your neighborhood has been shut down by a state legislature that was targeting them, all of these things can become insurmountable barriers in the real-life experience of trying to end a pregnancy.
0: Well, Roe versus Wade passed in 1973, and, and there was Hyde Amendment in 1976. And it's important, I think, to remember that Henry Hyde, the Republican congressman from Illinois, and the supporters of the amendment were very clear that they wanted to make abortion unavailable for all women. But it was only women receiving Medicaid that they had power over. Getting rid of the Hyde Amendment, it's not permanent law, you know, it can be eliminated. That's one concrete action that President-elect Biden could take right now. It seems like as we record on the 28th, we've just had a statement and no mention of Hyde.
2: You know, we are hopeful, but cautious. You know, as many folks know, President Biden has had a somewhat public evolution on the Hyde Amendment, right. where after, you know, frankly, the outcries, you know, na- nationwide outcries during the campaign, he then made clear that he would be committed to ending the Hyde Amendment. So we're grateful that he took that position publicly, but we also are really clear that accountability is going to be necessary to make sure that that promise is kept. And we have seen a few statements from the administration so far around the topic of abortion. They frankly have not gone far enough. The Biden administration statement on the Roe anniversary, in addition to not actually using the word abortion, which is concerning in and of itself, did not make clear a commitment to ending the racist Hyde Amendment, which, you know, as you pointed to, with the pro-abortion rights majority in the House, in the Senate, with the White House, there is no reason that Hyde or any coverage ban should appear in the next round of federal budget. So now is the time for the lawmakers, the president and those in Congress who have said that they oppose Hyde. Well, they've got the power now and people across the country are watching to see how they use that power.
0: I just want to add that Hart just did some research. Significant majority, 62 percent of voters favor Medicaid coverage of abortion services, as against 38 percent opposed. There's majority support among men, women, all age groups, all education levels. Well, words are powerful. It does matter that Biden didn't use the word abortion in his statement on the Roe anniversary. And framing is powerful, which is why I appreciate the way that you and Urge and others describe legal abortion as the floor, not the ceiling, as part of that expansive understanding of reproductive justice. Can you talk a little bit about how we talk about abortion and why it matters? What are you trying to do with that floor, not the ceiling phrase? Absolutely. So I think there's a few key pieces here. One is
2: about how we show respect To people who have had abortions. And first and foremost, those who have had abortions deserve the dignity of recognition. We need to use the word abortion. We need to talk about abortion as necessary healthcare and as a social good. Anything less, honestly, disregards and disrespects the one in four women in this country who have sought out this healthcare. So that's the first piece is, is Just saying the word abortion, it's not a bad word. It's a word that's saved people's lives and helped shape better futures. The other piece around the floor, not the ceiling, is for people with economic resources, what is a legal right on paper has so much more meaning than for people who are blocked because of economic barriers, because of racial barriers. So we look at something like abortion access, even before Roe v. Wade, when abortion was illegal across you know large swaths of the country, the reality is that women of means have always been able to get abortions. That has always been the reality for people with money. The vision for reproductive justice is not just, you know, you have a theoretical right to abortion if you can fight your way through all of the muck and the the, the restrictions, but reproductive justice means that if you've decided to end a pregnancy, you can do so safely with dignity, without upending your family's economic security, and without being subjected to, frankly, misogynist hate speech and stigma.
0: That was Kimberly Inez McGuire from URGE Unite for Reproductive and Gender Equity, talking with Counterspin in January of 2021. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show, you would like to hear previous shows, you can find them on our website, fair.org. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin.